From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, taking a look at something that passed at New Westminster Council. This was a motion that takes a look at allowing e-scooters on sidewalks. It takes a look at speed limits for the growing popular devices. And what does this mean, though, for the future of e-scooters and other type vehicles in that city? Well, Daniel Fontaine is the councillor who brought that motion forward. He is joining me now to talk more about what happened. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. This is something that council voted on, has now voted on. What exactly did council approve? So what council approved uh, last evening was a motion that I put forward that would look at exploring the implementation of a bylaw on our street, on our sidewalks, actually, uh, in terms of e-scooters and e-skateboards and making sure that they um, don't go beyond um, a speed that is safe on sidewalks. And, and that speed limit has yet to be set, but uh, the motion was passed unanimously um, yesterday at uh, Council. So now we're going to be awaiting a report back from the staff in terms of uh, the feasibility of the bylaw, what it might look like, and also potentially what the speed limit might be in terms of uh, being implemented on our, on our sidewalks. Do you have any concerns about even allowing e-scooters on sidewalks? I know other communities that have pilot projects, they're illegal on sidewalks. And uh, because of, of the potential for collisions and injuries, are there not mm. concerns about even allowing them to be on sidewalks rather than, say, side streets? Yeah, some members of council yesterday did uh, express uh, that concern, and I must admit, I, I too have a concern around the, the kind of multi-use of sidewalks, because primarily the number one priority for the city of New Westminster um, has and continues to be pedestrians. So I want to make sure that they're safe on sidewalks. But I think, Jill, it really comes down to, you know, whether or not an, an e-scooter or an e-skateboard is, is going like max speed on the sidewalk, and they're clearly driving and riding their their um, electric device in a, a non-safe way. I think that is the area that I'm most concerned about. If these uh, devices are, and they're not going away, so that we, we can't, uh, even if we tried to ban them, um, you can see from just going on any street that they are being used. That The important thing is making sure that they're being used safely and that they're not um, going excessive speeds. And that's primarily the thrust of the motion to at least begin a dialogue and a discussion around slowing down to make sure that... Uh, you know, if they do use those sidewalks, that they're very careful in the use of that. And that if there is, unfortunately, a collision, if you're going at a lower speed, it likely won't cause as much injury. How would this be enforced, though? Because like you said, a lot of these e-scooters, they're not going away. I have one. So mine maxes out at 30 kilometers, but many of them go much faster than that. How how do you enforce it? It's not like it's not like traffic where police might have a radar gun or a radar stop set up. How would you enforce making sure that people are going in and going by the rules, the the whatever that top speed is? Well, I think it's important to note that the motion that I introduced yesterday did have one amendment, and that amendment was to also undertake an education and awareness campaign of the risks of using uh, electric uh, e-scooters and and e-skateboards on sidewalks. So first and foremost, we want to educate uh, users and the public that, you know, if you are on sidewalks, that there are some inherent risks in using those uh, types of devices on sidewalks. 
Secondly, uh, you know, we heard from council from in council last night from staff that there are there is very little to any enforcement right now on on something like um, using e-scooters on our sidewalks. In the case of New Westminster, it's a bit ambiguous as to whether or not it's even illegal to use them on uh, sidewalks. We heard that from from staff last night. I think it's important to send a message, uh, in particular, if our if our you know civic government is setting the bylaw, and and I would hope when the staff come back that they will talk about the enforcement measures, what it would take to actually properly enforce. But from my perspective, I don't want to just have a bylaw brought in to just sit on the books and to not be enforced. I think it's important that there be an education and awareness campaign as well as full enforcement on it and that we're able to uh, make sure that we catch those who are uh, riding their e-scooters improperly or way too fast on sidewalks. And you brought this motion forward, though, and like you said, so it's an actual speed limit wasn't included. Do you have one in mind, what you think would be an appropriate speed if somebody was on an e-scooter on a sidewalk? Yeah, I, I don't have an exact number, but what uh, has been proposed or discussed is around the basically walking or, or riding your e-scooter at the same speed as a pedestrian. So you should not be going faster than what a pedestrian would go. And pedestrians don't walk particularly that fast. So if you're in and around pedestrians, you should not be weaving in and out of them at 20 to 30 kilometers an hour when clearly pedestrians are not walking that fast. That's one uh, potential uh, kind of limit that I've heard. But I'd like to hear back from staff around what's practical, what what can be actually monitored, tracked and, and actually implemented. Uh, but I would suspect it's going to be considerably lower than what we're seeing on our sidewalks right now. Right. But realistically, do you think anyone on an e-scooter, if they're riding on the sidewalk, is going to go the same speed as someone walking? Well, that's part of the discussion, Jill. Uh, <laughs> we have to have that discussion because I heard from a lot of seniors, a lot of vulnerable people who are on um, using uh, walkers, etc., who are on the sidewalk, who are saying they're just coming way too close to being injured. And we, if, if uh, e-scooter users are not prepared to lower their speed limits, then they perhaps are going to be subject to, to a fine. And I think that that's the discussion that we have to have as a community as to whether or not we want to put enforcement and actually do this. And as I indicated in council yesterday, an e-scooter colliding with a, a frail or elderly person is literally a death sentence. They're, they're going to fall, they're going to likely break a hip, and they're going to be into our medical system and there's a very good chance that they may not survive. So that's, the, that's how critical this is that we get this right. But at the moment, there are no rules. There are no um, guidelines. There's no education or awareness campaign. It is effectively the Wild West on our sidewalks. And this is a good first step at addressing that. But why not? And I get what you're saying. And I think that you make an excellent point that a collision, especially with an older person or a vulnerable person, that would be life changing. So why not do something like in the city of Vancouver, where they're only allowed legally on side streets or bike lanes? Why not take them off the sidewalks completely? Well, my understanding of the provincial regulation, the Motor Vehicle Act, is they're actually not allowed onto streets. So it's actually illegal other than in the pilot cities. There's a pilot project underway right now, I believe, in six cities. And they are testing it out. But that's not for sidewalks. That is for roadways. Um, so that they're, they're analyzing that data, seeing whether or not introducing that with speed limits and helmets and all the other things. But we won't get the data back on that pilot project for at least another year, perhaps a year and a half. 
so that 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 is possible that 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 does not pertain to sidewalk use that that pilot project is strictly on the roadways right yeah it's it's bike lanes and side streets and technically it's it's illegal say if you're on a, a main street or if you're on a sidewalk and i know there've been there've been issues with one particularly uh, over overachieving police officer in Vancouver that's been ticketing. But I think it does come down, and I'm sure you heard from people at council, that Mm -hmm. even with a speed limit, it's not a great mix having these devices and pedestrians together on a sidewalk. No, it's not. And we did did hear that. And I guess I'm trying to be practical and pragmatic about it. I don't think we're going to be able to eliminate e-scooters from the sidewalks. I just think that there's more and more of them coming around every single day. Every time I turn around, people are on their e-scooters, like yourself and others who purchase them. I think it comes down to uh, etiquette, making sure that people understand that speeding on a sidewalk is not permitted. It's clearly against a bylaw. And also making sure that people understand the risks of collisions on sidewalks can have very very uh, dire consequences for people who are frail and elderly. I just don't think we've had that conversation. I think, you know, if you were to ask the average e-scooter person, I'm sure going down a sidewalk, they will just tell you there are no rules and there's no, there's no speed limits, there's no regulations on sidewalks, and hence you're seeing it. And I think that this is a first step in at least that public engagement and dialogue around making sure that we set some rules and set some procedures so that uh, if and when e-scooters are used on sidewalks, that they're done properly and safely. I don't know if this came up as part of the discussion, but do you think there also needs to be another look at things like insurance? I know this comes up with cyclists mm. constantly, but what about if there is a collision or somebody on an e-scooter runs into somebody uh, that uh, there, there's insurance, that there is there is a way that people are protected financially? Yeah, I have heard that. I've had uh, held a number of uh, kind of Keltzer Cafe sessions in the community and community come in to, to talk to me about this issue. And that has been raised in addition to just simply banning them off of the sidewalks. But the issue of insurance has come up. That was not part of the motion. It's not, I haven't gone there and I'm not sure whether or not council would, would advocate for that. It is a much more complex issue once you begin the process of, of working with ICBC to look at an insurance policy. But I have heard from a number of citizens who said, that they know someone who got injured or they almost themselves got injured and they're worried about what would happen if that that happened because the person on the e-scooter perhaps is underage, doesn't have a license, doesn't have insurance, and and hence they would be bearing all the responsibility and all the cost related to the injury and the e-scooter rider would not. So as it stands now then, with this motion passing at Council and uh, the the, the motion passes, there's the amendment for the Mm -hmm. public education campaign. Where do things stand as far as people who have electronic or electric scooters in New West? Mm -hmm. Well, as far as New West is concerned, in terms of our own uh, bylaws in the Motor Vehicle Act, you're not legally allowed to use them on uh, roadways. And in terms of the sidewalks, as was noted yesterday in council, it is a little bit ambiguous and we need to get some clarity around that because, uh, for example, uh, bicycles are permitted on a number of sidewalks within uh, the city of New Westminster. So this report, when it comes back, I'm hoping it will put all of that into context and be able to provide us with a bit more clarity around the the bylaw and whether or not we actually, in fact, need to tighten up the bylaw, provide more more clarity on that. As you can appreciate, Jill, these bylaws were, were written well before we had e-scooters and e-skateboards. It's just they were written at a, in a different time and a different era, and they likely need to be updated. And I'm hoping that the motion that was passed yesterday will get that process started so we can at least modernize and update some of our bylaws. Councillor Fontaine, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us to talk more about this today. Thanks for having me on, Joe.
We have certainly spent a lot of time talking about health care. You'll recall in BC, the announcement was made earlier this year that some cancer patients are being sent to Bellingham for their treatment. This after a very public court case and a battle involving private clinics here in BC, a case that the Supreme Court of Canada did not hear, would not agree to hear. And this all happening while in Quebec, it is a very, very different story. And some new research has been released. It is called Lessons from the Public-Private Partnerships in Surgical Care in Quebec. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Yannick Labrie, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Yannick, thank you so much for taking some time. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, You uh, have taken a look at some of the numbers and what role private surgical clinics are playing in Quebec. What have you found? Well, I found uh, many interesting results. Uh, well, first, let's begin with uh, some background. You know, Quebec has experimented with such partnership for quite uh, a long time. It began about 15 years ago. And since then, we've seen public hospitals uh, contracting out certain uh, elective surgeries to private clinics. And what we've noticed is that those hospitals that have negotiated agreements with private clinics manage to achieve uh, their wait time targets better than other hospitals. So there has been some uh, success in terms of access in Quebec, even before the pandemic. But since the pandemic, uh, the arrival of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we've, uh, we've seen that such partnerships have gained momentum. And as, as of, you know, as of 2023, uh, about 17% of all publicly funded day surgeries uh, are performed in private surgical clinics in Quebec. And when you looked at what kinds of surgeries are done in Quebec, has that changed or expanded or what is being covered in these clinics? Yeah, it has changed over time. Uh, initially, only three surgeries were uh, allowed to be performed in private clinics, mostly uh, hip surgeries, uh, knee surgeries, cataract removals, and now um, about 50, a little more than 50 uh, surgeries are now performed in private clinics, mostly uh, plastic surgeries, of course, but some orthopedic surgeries as well. But it, it has, you know, increased a lot, the number of surgeries allowed in the, the Quebec system. And there's, it certainly has been something that's been talked about here in BC. And as I mentioned, a very public, a very heated debate with private clinics in yeah. a court case. But when you look to what's happening in Quebec and how, how Quebec has different rules when it comes to the use of private sur- surgeries, is it complementing the healthcare system in that province? You mentioned achieving the wait time goals. How is it? Is it? Is it kind of? Is it working with the public system then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're talking about private delivery of surgical care. So those surgeries remain uh, publicly funded. Uh, it, it is within, you know, the, the realm of a universal system. You know, the Quebec has to comply with, you know, the, the, the principles uh, in the Canada Health Act as any other province in, in, in Canada. So... Uh, yeah, basically, it's 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 in terms of delivery of surgical care, and it, it 
it's complementary and not it's not a substitution to the public system and it's a top up and uh yeah well it's it's been uh, encouraged by the uh, the government but it's been supported by the population as well uh and for different reasons uh you know surveys after surveys we notice that in Quebec uh, people tend to support uh, private sector participation in healthcare more than uh, than elsewhere in Canada. Why? It's difficult to pinpoint one specific reason, but this is something that we uh, we notice in, in Quebec. Um, and even surgeons, even doctors, when you ask them, a large majority of them are in favor of being um, allowed to you know to operate on uh, patients in private clinics. Because you know their productivity is uh, is higher. Uh, quite often they, they, they have to operate, and they're frustrated because in public hospitals they're you know they're not given enough time in the operating operating room, and because of that you know wait wait times are quite uh, quite quite long, and it could be quite long. So well you know like I said it's it's very uh, beneficial for patients, but not only for fortunate. Um, for um, you know, high-income patients, it's 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 you know it's 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 universal, and everyone can access private clinics, even if they have low means. Uh, something else that's mentioned in the study is the fact that the public hospitals in Quebec can go into agreements. They can go to the private surgical clinics and say, look, we're not meeting our wait times. They're exceeding the targets that we have. Mm-hmm. We need to make an agreement with you then to, to make this happen. I mean, that almost seems very similar to what BC is doing, but not with private clinics in BC, but with private clinics in the United States in Bellingham. How important is that? Or or as far as Quebec meeting those targets because they are allowed to enter into those agreements with private clinics? Well, uh, you know, wait times can uh, differ significantly from one region to another. And the percentage of surgical cases outsourced to private clinics also differs significantly from one region. And in some regions tend to, you know, rely more on private clinics. And as a matter of fact, those regions are the ones that best manage to reach their wait time targets. So uh, obviously there are you know private clinics, I'd say almost everywhere in in uh, in the province. But some of them, many of them are concentrated in in, in Quebec City and you know in Laval, in in Montreal, and because of that. Patients are, you know, able to get access to their surgical um, procedures in private clinics in those regions. So, but more and more, what we we see is that many more uh, uh, clinics uh, have entered the market. Uh, in 2014, for instance, there were only 45 such clinics. Now, as of this year, about 73. So, there's a momentum, like I mentioned. In the um, in the recent years, uh, and well, I think uh, Quebec patients benefit from that.
Is there the the same issue in Quebec or does does Quebec deal with a shortage of doctors and nurses like we're seeing in BC? Because that's always been one of the arguments for those who are opposed to private clinics saying that they pull staff members out of the public system and that in doing that, they could actually make things worse in the the public system. I don't know if the report went into that or looked at that, but did you find that that was an issue in Quebec? Well, it's an issue everywhere in, in Canada, in every province, and, and Quebec as well. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's too simple to say that it's, you know, wait times are due to you know, lack of nurses or shortage of doctors. It's much more complicated. Uh, what we see in, in the public uh, hospital system in, in Quebec, but it's probably the same thing in, in the other provinces, Surgeries are postponed or canceled due to different circumstances, unforeseen events. Uh, it, it, it's sometimes a problem with, uh, you know, uh, um, availability of staff. But quite often, it's it's not because we are lacking staff; it's because we're not using them efficiently. You know, uh, there are some rigidity in employment contracts in public hospitals that you don't find in private clinics. You know, private clinics are better able to use their medical staff and maintain low absence rates, for instance. And this allows um, private clinics to be much more productive. Like I said, surgeons, when you know, when you uh, gather data about their productivity, all the uh, data show that you know they're about twenty to twenty percent to to more than forty percent more productive in private clinics. So maybe you have staff working in private clinic instead of public hospitals, but since they're more productive, they can, you know, uh, that allows them to uh, perform more surgeries, people wait less, and overall we have a more efficient healthcare system. Uh, you mentioned as well that residents of Quebec seem to be more open to this or more supportive of this. Do you think that other provinces should be looking at this model and potentially or possibly also kind of adopting this or, or taking on a similar type model to meet those wait time targets? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, uh, you know, patients would benefit in the rest of the country from having better access to their surgical uh, care, uh, even if it's in private clinics, they don't mind as long as it, as it, you know, as it is publicly funded. If they don't have to pay out of pocket, I think they would agree to be uh, operated on in, in in private clinics. It doesn't matter to them whether it's in public hospitals or private clinics, as long as they don't wait um, too long to get access to their surgery, and as long as they don't have to pay out of their own pocket. Uh, well. Yeah, I, I think in the rest of the country, they're not different than in Quebec. They would agree to being operated on uh, earlier, uh, even if it's in private clinic, as long as the quality of care is equivalent. It, it, this is the case in, in Quebec, of course, obviously. Yannick Labrie, thank you so much for your time. Very interesting uh, study and research. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks, Steve. 
Well, we know the world of work has really changed. Whether you are back in the office, maybe you're working hybrid, many workplaces are seeing more people return. But what does that mean when it comes to office etiquette? Are people brushing up on those best practices? Not in every case, according to a new survey that was done by Robert Half. And joining us now is David Bolton, Regional Director at Robert Half, based in Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you ever so much for letting me join you. Well, I think this is something that people who maybe have been at the office this entire time throughout the pandemic or maybe have returned are noticing that things might be a little different and maybe in some cases not for the better. Your company did a survey on on office etiquette. What did you find that that people were finding in the office that maybe would, would be put in the blunder column? Yeah, absolutely. We, we surveyed just over 500 workers in Canada, and there were two real key things that came up as the, the, the office faux pas, if you will. One was loud talkers, people maybe not being quite as conscious as they could be about the volume of conversations they're having in and around the office, leaning over people's desks. And the other was just the return of office gossip. So 35% of the people we surveyed found that, uh, yeah, loud talkers and office gossip with two of their biggest pet peeves as they returned to the office. Hmm, interesting. And I wonder if you put those two together, if it was people standing around talking about others, gossiping and doing it loud, uh, even, even more of a concern for people. Spot on. It's a very tough balance. You know, we've seen more and more people in Vancouver, particularly returning to the office. And part of that is because people want that connectivity and they want to have the ability to interact with their colleagues. So, that will encourage conversations in the office, that will encourage more discussion. So it is finding that balance of how can we create an environment of connectivity and having these face-to-face discussions in office, whilst also being considerate of those people that are maybe in the zone and are trying to focus on their work and not disturbing them. I wonder, too, if it's a little bit of people got used to the office being so quiet because in some cases, almost everybody would have been working from home. So those maybe that were in the office that stayed got used to it being unusually quiet. And those who have returned maybe are are just embracing the fact that there are people around, that you're not working from home with maybe your pet, the only other living creature near you and are just overly excited to be back and talking with people. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. And when you combine that with virtual meetings still taking place, you're seeing people are maybe having loud, gregarious conversations in the office, or maybe they're joining a virtual call and not using headphones. They were used to working at home and using the speakers and the microphone of the laptop, and now they're having those same conversations in the office. And and that can be disturbing if you're used to working in a, like say, a silent environment or just a little furry friend next to you while you're trying to do your work. I know you also talked to people about the idea of business casual. We certainly uh, saw, uh, I remember talking so much about stretchy clothes, uh, people saying they were never going back or didn't ever want to go back to wearing hard pants, uh, that that would be very, very difficult. Uh, and I, a lot of places as well have relaxed their dress codes, but it sounds like people maybe are taking that a little too far. Yeah, we found that 68% of people have, have felt that their dress code is more relaxed now than it was pre-pandemic. But 25% of people don't actually know where the line is. I think we've all seen that um, that individual who's maybe been business on the top and, and 
more relaxed on the bottom when they've been working from home and they've had a professional collared shirt with the sweatpants on. And as they've come back to the office, it's finding that balance of what is appropriate. Our advice has always been in this scenario is to have a conversation. If, if you're not too sure, err on the side of conservative and, and, and dress up a touch more professional. But if you're returning to the office, you're not exactly sure what the, the appropriate level of attire is. Have a look at those around you and, and speak to the leadership that are, that are overseeing that office. And it is difficult when you've got used to, as you say, working in those stretchy pants to, to readjust into something more formal. But um, if you don't know, have the conversation and ask the people around you what the, the right way to go about it is. Is this something as well that companies should be paying more attention to in that maybe you didn't have an actual dress code written down in the past or if it was it was implied and you kind of uh, made the assumption that employees would know what's appropriate? But is this something where companies now do need to take the time if you don't have a dress code and there is an expectation in the office that that needs to be written down somewhere? Very much so. I think historically a new employee may join an organisation and from day one they can just intrinsically feel what the dress code is. But if you're an organisation where the people have predominantly worked at home for two, three years and you've had a large number of staff turnover in that time, then you don't have that same benchmark when you return to the office. So we encourage encourage companies to have that dress code written down, but also it gives them a chance to be very considerate to to not marginalise any represent or any any um, groups of people and making sure that they actually have a dress code that encourages people to be able to show their individualism, but whilst also being respectful of different cultures or, or backgrounds as well. And one of the other things, I know so many people got used to Zoom calls, maybe meetings on Teams and doing that, and are still doing that in some in some cases. But whether it's a, a meeting that is being done online or in person, what are you finding as far as colleagues and people that are, are paying attention, being on time and respecting the time of others when it comes to meetings? Yes, uh, tardiness to meetings is another big bugbearer of people. It's very easy when you're going from virtual meetings at time to click out of one and click into the next and, and start immediately. But if you're running around an office complex and moving from one, one room to another, you need to just think a little bit ahead and you can't maybe have one meeting finish and another meeting start um, straight after it in a, in a different room or different location. So paying attention to how your calendar has become more important but also know that when you get to a meeting, is there an agenda? But back when people worked at home, sometimes there's more of a consideration for, this might be the only time we get to chit chat. So the first five minutes of a virtual meeting may be dedicated to small talk and reconnecting with your colleagues. Whereas now we're back into an office environment, a lot of that chit chat is taking place, as I said earlier, maybe across the desk too loudly, but. The expectation when you come to a meeting may now be we want to kick off the meeting on time and and get straight into business. So it's important to have a precedent across the organisation of how these meetings should be addressed. But there's nothing worse than you joining a meeting, being ready to go and the rest of the attendees or some of the attendees not being there or running late or not being able to to start as you as a meeting host want to.
Do you think that's also because of that shift to going to virtual meetings where you could mute your microphone or you could turn your camera off for a bit, a few seconds if you needed to do something else and that people were distracted and you could be distracted without it being noticed, whereas that's kind of hard to do when you're in an in-person meeting? Yeah, very much so. It's a tough balance because I think even now if you're in the office, you might have your laptop next to you and you might have your instant messenger popping up, you might have your email popping up, a phone call coming through, and yet the person across the desk from you wants your undivided attention. And uh, when they see your eyes wandering to the bottom corner of your screen as emails and things pop in, it, it does make them feel like they're not maybe as valuable in this conversation as you are. So it's definitely a shift and, and one that people need to really train themselves to, um, to change their habits. Well, interesting findings indeed. David, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks ever so much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.